there are seven major divisions in Romans. And it, you have an introduction and you have an ending. And in between, there's these five main points. We see that righteousness is needed, righteousness is imputed, righteousness is imparted, righteousness is vindicated, and then righteousness is, um, what is the last one, practiced. So you can see, you can already get a sense of, oh, this is talking about righteousness, about God's righteousness. Now, you've heard the difference between imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. Now, not only will that benefit you to have an understanding of that, that's not just one of those things that only scholars know. That's something that would be good for you also in your everyday walk to understand and to know. Because in our everyday walk, we, we run into circumstances that challenge our fears and our doubts and our worry and things. Wouldn't it be great to have that understanding of what is imputed righteousness? What is justification by faith? Uh, what is the victory that God has given us? And what is, uh, what is works driven? Where, what is the works of Christ? And what are the works that I am supposed to do? Um, you get that between the difference between righteousness imputed and righteousness imparted. So Romans has that. And that is kind of the theme. Now, today, uh, hopefully I don't go too fast. I, I was praying this morning. I think both of these lessons today, I might have a tendency to go fast. And I, I uh, promise I, I don't mean to. But on our website, I have, if you've missed uh, any of the messages on the website, metathorpebaptistchurch.com, I have a place for the Romans uh, so if you go back, I've put all 65 kind of links there if you want to look and, and go back to, and go into more detail of any of these. So as you're looking at the outline, the salutation and statement of theme, um, verse 1 through, or chapter 1, and then 1 through 17. But here's the greeting. We see that Paul greets them, and then Paul's interest in verses 8 through 15 was to come see them. Now remember, he's writing this letter from Corinth. He really wants to come see Rome, and then he wants to go to Spain. He wants to kind of slingshot past Rome and then ultimately end up in Spain because that was the uttermost to the known world. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and he wanted to go where the Gentiles were. And the uttermost was considered Spain. That's the end of the world to, to, to them back in this time period. So that's his desire. Uh, of the mutual faith. He wants to come and be comforted with them and impart gifts and, and teach. And um, in verse 17 or verse 16, we start getting into the theme. Verse 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed, in Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, he's talking about the gospel of Christ, therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So immediately we see the theme of, of Romans. You'll see this righteousness in those huge five divisions, which we have outlined. Romans all deal with righteousness. So... The first thing we see, and we see righteousness needed. So Paul had introduced the theme. He had introduced 
um, the introduction of his desires, who he's writing to, the salutation. And so in verses 18 through 32, we see the condemnation of the Gentile. Now, what we do in outlining is we put things in categories where they, they fit well. Now, not all the time. Um, yeah, Jason, if you could. Not all the time. It's cut and dry. <laughs> you know, the, it, even though we see the condemnation of the Gentile in verses 18 through 32, it means everybody, not just the Gentile. But specifically in verse 18 through 32, we see the, the cause of the condemnation was willful ignorance. And then the consequences of the condemnation is divine abandonment. So in verse 18, we see that natural man, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. So he's talking about those who suppress the knowledge, the truth of God. That's willful, uh, that's willful ignorance. And then man's failure, ultimate failure in verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen and being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So we see the condemnation is starting to describe the natural state of man and the, the wrath of God is not just revealed, it will be revealed in an eschatological sense, but it, will, it is being revealed even now. The wrath of God is being revealed even now, and here's some of the consequences. There's this separation. In verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So we see the ultimate failure of man was that they did not bring glory to God. They did not fulfill the purpose of their design when they disobeyed nor were they thankful. And so what has God done? Now, what happens with man is they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Look at verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. So in the epic wisdom of the natural man, so they know that there's a God, but now they're suppressing the truth of God. And that ignorance, that willful ignorance that there is a God, they say that's wisdom. It's, it's more sophisticated. It's wise to deny that there's a God. Let's invent some other way or some other means by the which we are here. Therefore, we are not accountable the way we live to anybody. If we're just some random accident, then we do not have, we're not accountable to anybody. And so they say that's wisdom. That's me being smart. But in verse 22, that's what he says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I mean, some of the things that, that they say, and to us, as we know, it takes more faith to believe what they say than it does to believe that there's, you walk outside and immediately, you intuitively know that there's a creator God, there's intelligence behind everything we see. Um, but to them, it, it was the wisdom of God that the cross of Christ should be foolish. 
and they chalk it up to foolishness. But to us who are saved, we see the wisdom behind what God has done, that it's cloaked in foolishness to them. And so they're heaping to themselves. And so in verse 23 through 30, you see the descent of man, they, how they redefine God. We see that it starts with creeping things, with things that are small in verse 23. They change the glory of God. They redefine God in their epic wisdom. They've redefined him and made him likened to the creeping things. And then just notice how it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, the idolatry in your life doesn't start real big. It starts small. And then it grows. It grows and grows and grows as God is continuing to give you up to that foolishness and that reprobate. Uh, until pretty, pretty soon, what is the ultimate apex of a God abandonment is homosexuality. That's what he says, verse 27. So, I mean, in verse 24, it starts small. That you see a drift from God. And then by the time that they are totally abandoning God and they are totally self-seeking and self-serving and they have completely abandoned God, he says, verse 26, God gave them up into vile affections. For even their women did change a natural use into that which is against nature. It is ultimate rebellion of who they were created to be. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman. I mean, what an abandonment of your designer to go against your design of how you were naturally made. Uh, burned in their lusts one toward another, men with men, working with that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of the air, which was meat. Now, we need to also understand, if it were not by the grace of God, this would be us. This would be it, it, the man in a natural state they burn with lust, and sin gets worse in your life. It, it doesn't stay small. It grows. The more you turn from the Lord, the more that sin grows bigger in your life. And so in verse 29 through 32, they're filled with unrighteousness, fornication, and wickedness. Okay, so according to our outline, we just went over... Um, the 1 through, or the 18 through 32, then in chapter 2, it starts with the moralists. Those who are, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. So what's interesting is, you know, that last piece that I just said, that's the carefulness which we need to approach chapter 1 with, is understanding if it were not by the grace of God, that this would be us. This would be our condition. So it is not for us to judge. It is not for us to condemn. It's God that justifies. It's God who condemns. Um, we are not to be their judge. Now, and even when you go about to judge other people's sin, and, and here's the mentality. When you set yourself up as a judge, as the religious order of the Jews did, and when you set yourself up to judge others and you're doing it yourself, you're condemning yourself because you're admitting that it's wrong. So you know that it's wrong and you're doing it. So even more so, because you're, you are pronouncing it in others, 
and you yourself are abandoning it, you are heaping up to yourself that judgment already. But he says, verse 2, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. So he goes on to talk about the moralists. Now, it talks about the Gentiles have the law, verse 14, for when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are law unto themselves. So whether you're a Jew who is under the law or whether you're a Gentile that does not have the Mosaic law in your life, you don't have all the rules, you don't have the history, you don't have the stories that have been passed down from generation to generation, you don't observe Passover, you're, you're not in this family unit that observes the things which God did in their past, you, whether you have the written law or whether you don't have the written law, uh, that is what he's saying that in verse 15, the Gentiles actually show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Whether you have a law or not, you're, you are still under condemnation. And that's in verses 1 through 16. Then he gets specifically into the Jew in chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 8. He did not keep the law of God. He did not believe the promises of God. And so uh, I probably need to start moving a little bit faster. Um, actually, I, I was looking back, and I noticed that we have already done a chapter 1 through 7 review. We did it a while back. We did about, I don't know, eight, nine months ago, whenever we just got finished with chapter 7. So that is also out there. So I may just kind of go through this pretty quickly, and then when we hit chapter 8 this morning, we may go a little bit more slower. But, um, Sister Alicia, if you, if you didn't get one of the outlines, we, we have them back there on the table. I don't know if you got one or not. Um, so, the righteousness is needed. That is chapter 1, 18 through 320. That is what's being established. Doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, a moralist, a Jew, uh, and the chapter 3, verse 9 through 20, all are under sin. Look at chapter 3 and look at verse uh, 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And we've established whether you're in or outside the law, it does not matter. So whether it's your conscience, your moral compass, whatever uh, you are basing your behavior on of right and wrong, uh, you will be judged by that and there will be no flesh justified by your behavior from that law, from your obedience or disobedience from the law that is guiding you through life. So, um, all have sinned. And that's what it says, the condemnation of all men, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none good, no, not one. So, righteousness imputed. Now, verse, chapter 3, verse 21 uh, of Romans, I hope you kind of commit it to memory because that's a turning point. That's a beautiful turning point. I mean, chapters 1 through 3 really established in a bleak way our state before God and our helplessness before God. We, it is an unsolvable problem that man cannot solve. But in chapter 3, verse 21, now we start seeing how God has solved it. But now, 
the righteousness of God. That word, those words, but now, is really the hinge point of now which we are moving forward, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So what that means is the righteousness of God has been revealed to us, it's provided to us, outside of us keeping or not keeping the law. So, in verse 22, he talks about this righteousness. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. What does that mean? How can we have the righteousness of God? This is talking about the imputed righteousness of God. How can I have the righteousness of God? I don't feel righteous. I, I don't feel holy. I don't feel like I'm perfect. And we know, each of us know, we're not perfect. We can't stand. I mean, once you're saved, God just doesn't take sin out of your life. Um, you kind of wish he would because we feel convicted about it. So that's what he is saying, that the righteousness which we can gain is just from the law. That is the only righteousness or unrighteousness that you or I could ever do. And we've already seen how we fall short of that. So it can't be our righteousness. It can't be our right and wrong. It can't be our performance from the law. So that's why he says that it's without the law. It's outside of the law. So in verse 22, what is it? It's the righteousness of God. And how do you receive the righteousness of God? It's by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So it's very clear there, very clear. Uh, presented to us amazingly. So that's the description of righteousness in our outline. So righteousness imputed is justification, salvation. The description of righteousness, uh, what is it? It's God's righteousness. It must be imputed to us. We must declare his righteousness for the remission of our sins. I must declare his righteousness for the forgiveness of my sins. I cannot say, look at what I did right. Look, because I did nothing right. I mean, even if you did something right, you did something wrong. And by that, there shall no flesh be justified. So we must declare and hinge upon him. Hinge upon Jesus. This is imputed righteousness. This is a lot different than the imparted righteousness. Imputed righteousness deals with justification. It deals with the forensic terms of the law. It's all judicial. Justification is what God has done for us that was accomplished. Okay? Sanctification is what God is doing in us that is being accomplished. Justification was once for all. When you came to repentance and faith, you were justified. You had received the remarkable, pure, innocent record of Jesus Christ to your account 
So when you die and you stand before God, he will see no sin. There will be no sin that he could charge you with because he'll see the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Well, what happened to my sin? Did God just erase it and forget it? No, he imputed Jesus with my account on the cross. So God does not just ignore sin, sweep it under the rug. It talks about how God had to be just in justifying me. How could God be just in forgiving me of my sins? Well, he had to punish for my sins. No sin goes unpunished. Not any one of your sins has to go punished. Now, but in justification, by faith, God did punish for my sins that I committed this morning, for yesterday, for tomorrow. He punished Christ. Because, why did he punish Christ? Because he charged my record to him on the cross. He charged my record from yesterday until the day I die. My whole record was put on Christ. And Jesus' whole record was put on me. That's imputed righteousness. And it is a beautiful doctrine. I love imputed righteousness. And I just could talk for hours and hours about it. Because not only, I mean, that this is one of those knowledges. It's not just something that we know. But it's something that brings us assurance. It brings us confidence. It brings us uh, victory in the things of life. Knowing that that work has been settled long ago. And so that way, if something does afflict you, or I always talk about this because, you know, I saw dad just his mind go. Uh, he ended up getting dementia, and I, I don't know if that was just from the medicines because he had Parkinson's or if that was something he was getting. But there towards the end, he wasn't himself. You know, he wasn't the, the man who had spent his life teaching other preachers and Baptist colleges and, and preaching and love the people, love the Lord. He was just somebody else. But his salvation wasn't dependent on him at that point in his life. That salvation was done long ago when he repented and believed and God called him to himself. For God had finished that work upon the cross and the resurrection. So it was finished. Dad didn't have to complete it in order to go to heaven. It was finished. Now, we by faith receive it. We by faith. That's the only way you can receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can't earn it. All we can earn is what we have with the law, and we know that we've fallen short of the law. Um, I knew I was going to get stuck on righteousness and pewter. There's, um, okay, we're going to go fast. We're going to see, hopefully... Uh, if you all have any questions, definitely ask me. I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, and go to the website. I may put a link on the, the video and if you need to go there. All right. So let's just get the reading, the outline. And if we get time, we'll, we'll come back. So, righteousness imputed. The, here's the turning point. But now. You know, we went from righteousness needed now to righteousness imputed. It's Christ's righteousness. There's no bragging, no boasting. And so he goes on to give us an illustration of Abraham. How was Abraham saved? Abraham was saved by grace through faith. Abraham was justified the same way. 
Abraham's faith was apart from works. It was apart from circumcision. It was apart from the law. It was faith was in God. And it says that Abraham believed God and God counted it unto him for righteousness. That means that Abraham was imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus had not died on the cross yet, but they looked forward and toward that God would forgive through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his righteousness. It, you know, it looked forward to when Jesus would die on the cross. We look back. And the beautiful benefits of righteousness and the, the peace with God, the peace of God, Romans chapter 5, the applicability of righteousness, he goes on to talk about how we're in Christ in verses 12 through 21, how one man's obedient. We have a reign of life instead of a reign of sin and death. Now we get to righteousness imparted. There's the sanctification part. There's the regeneration. Justification is a work that we didn't feel in us. Okay? That's where the Catholics will teach that justification is a, is a progress. And what that means is you're becoming perfect, 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 perfect. And then, uh, if you don't become perfect before you die, well, then you've got to go to purgatory. And because then in purgatory, you have people who light candles for you, who pray for you, who give money to the church. So that way they can push you on up to heaven because you weren't justified before you died. Justification is not a work in us. And that's what the whole Reformation and the Protestantism and all of that came out. That's what Luther came out and Calvin and all them said that's not true. Justification is not a work in us because justification deals with Christ's perfect righteousness. Okay? So it was, it was a, a, an account swap at the cross. Now, sanctification imparted righteousness does deal. There is a part of the work. We all felt regeneration, didn't we? We all felt when we came to repentance and faith and God worked that peace in you. He worked the sorrow and the peace in you. And you also feel the continual conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know that the Spirit bears witness with your spirit that we are the children of God. So there's a continual basis. It's a, that is a progress which we will never be able to complete in these bodies. We will never become perfect in these bodies. That is imparted righteousness, and he talks about that in chapter 6 through 8. The principles of sanctification is the question of license. Shall we continue in sin? God forbid. Shall we continue to sin? God forbid. Boy, I love Romans chapter 6. I just love it. Um, the practice of sanctification is the question about law, chapter 7 deals with, are we still under the law? Are we still under the... How can we be under something which we're dead to? Paul says, count yourself dead to the law. We're under grace, but dead to the law. A lot of people take that and they go into error with it. They go into some kind of anti-law, uh, antinomianism idea. Oh, I can sin all I want and because I'm saved, and I'm, that that's not the attitude. Uh, I like this illustration the lame man at the beautiful gate. Remember him in Acts? How he was the impotent man, the lame man at the beautiful gate, and he was there begging. He was there begging his whole life. He only could act out because of the condition he was in, right? So he couldn't get up and walk. His whole lifestyle was because of his condition. He had boundaries. 
He couldn't go outside. He, or he couldn't go and do the things that other people could do because of the condition he was in. But when Peter came and said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give unto ye. And he says, rise, stand up, and walk again. We see the lame man have a different condition all of a sudden. And now he's got the ability to do things which he has not been able to do before. The same thing is with salvation. Uh, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, God forbid. Your condition's been changed. You can't continue to be lame because God's healed you. So we cannot continue in sin because our position, our condition has changed. Then he says, well, do we continue to sin? Well, God forbid. Don't you know that the things that you want to do now, you have the ability to do now. You, you're, because of your condition, you are going to behave differently. That's who you're going to be. And you're not going to have this mentality of what can I get away with and still be saved. Uh, now, you're going to be leaping and running, and just like this lame man was making a, a spectacle of himself. When your condition changes, your behavior changes. Do we fall back into sin, and does sin overtake us, and the flesh take us? And Yes, it does. And Paul talks about that struggle. A Christian at their best state says, oh, who can deliver me from this body of death? The things that I want to do that I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I do. That is this body of death. We still need to shed this body of death. We will either receive a resurrected body or a translated body one of these days. All right, moving really, really fast. All right. So, um, the practice of sanctification, and we just talked about that. He compared it with uh, a, a husband and a wife being married, and then the death of one caused the freedom of the other. They were outside of that bondage. Same thing with the law. Count yourself dead indeed into the law. You are no longer under that relationship to the law, you've been freed to marry another. You've been freed to serve Christ, and that's what we are doing. I think I just went out. The power of sanctification, the question of living, uh, the, the ministry of the Spirit, we see there, and then righteousness vindicated. Uh, in chapter 9, uh, we talk about Israel. What about Israel? Israel's past. Uh, Paul's sorrow, his continual sorrow for his kinsmen according to the flesh. We see God's sovereignty of Israel and his, the present state, the future state, and the remnant according to election that we see of Israel. Now, we understand that, um, I feel like my audio just went out, but um, can y'all hear me okay? Okay. We talked about this in our Hebrews session as well. God's people are God's spiritual people. Those are the ones who are of belief. Right? Even when God had called Israel out of Egypt, he was not pleased with all of Israel. Who was he not pleased with? He was not pleased with those in unbelief. Now, that we see that blindness in part has happened in Romans chapter 9. That is God's sovereignty. But there is a remnant according to the election of grace amongst the national people of Israel that God has reserved to himself. That does not mean every single physical Jew is going to be saved. Uh, just like every single physical Jew wasn't saved with Moses. There were some that God cast out and cast away. Who? Those who were in unbelief. 
The same thing's true today. There's, there's not going to be a different type of salvation for the Jews. It's the same way. It just means that God, right now, we're in the time of the Gentiles, where God is saving his remnant amongst the Gentiles. He's not saving all of America. He's not saving all of Russia, not all of, all of the world. He's saving his remnant. He's saving those whom he foreknew and foreloved. Pretty soon, one day, he's going to swing the pendulum back to the nation of Israel, if not every single person in Israel will be saved, but all of spiritual Israel will be. And so uh, we don't have time to go into that. If you want to go and uh, look at that more, go back into uh, the lessons which we had. I think I spent four weeks on what about Israel. Finally, chapter 12 through chapter 15 is this righteousness practice. That's where we, in relation to ourselves, the church, society, the government, other believers, the stronger, the weaker brethren. And then finally, the personal messages and the benediction that we see Paul's good attitude towards women with Phoebe. And then Paul's admonition and benediction at the very end. To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And so God receives the glory for his gospel. That's what we spoke about last week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us and the power which you have saved us. Thank you, Lord, for the ones who will be here today. Father, we do pray that we'll just be pleasing to you, bring you honor and glory. May our praise be of a sacrifice and it be uh, sweet smelling to you. May all of us lift our hearts and our minds and focus just on the beauty of your great salvation and your love towards us. What a hope that you give us. In Jesus' name.